Take your Bible if you haven't already and find your place at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the third and the final message in this series entitled Censored. Censored. In the first message, we talked about human sexuality from Genesis chapter 2 and about why it is that we are broken in sin and why our human sexuality, our sexuality has been affected or how it has been affected. In last week's message, we spent our time in Romans chapter 1 and we talked about uh, homosexuality. So we moved from human sexuality to homosexuality. And we talked about what the scripture had to say on that matter. Now today, we're going to talk about holy sexuality. Holy sexuality. And I just want to tell you up front that this is one of those messages that's really hard for a preacher to deliver, especially from my generation, uh, because you just didn't use that three-letter word very often in a church service. It just wasn't appropriate. You know what three-letter word I'm talking about, don't you? It's the word sex. And you just didn't use that word very frequently, uh, at least growing up in my family and growing up in our church. It just wasn't heard very often. And I'm going to use that word a lot today. Suddenly everybody's ears perk up. This may be more interesting than I thought. Uh, you're, you're going to be listening, but it's also one of those messages that it's very difficult to, to deliver. Sometimes it'll feel like the atmosphere is, is thick in here and you can almost cut it. Um, but that's okay. We're going to get through this because this is in the scripture and uh, it is something that we all have to know, we all have to understand. So because it's sort of one of those different, difficult subjects, I decided to start with sort of a, a little bit of a funny story. Uh, you know about dating and how much fun dating uh, can be, and especially if you go back into a bygone era. There was a young couple that had gone out on their very first date, and it was a wonderful experience for the two of them. They were enjoying one another, and uh, they got home. Uh, he brought her home, and he walked her up the steps, and she stopped there just outside the door, leaned up against the door, and he decided that he wanted to try to get that all-important first kiss. You've been there, haven't you? That's why it's so quiet at this moment. That all-important first kiss. And so he put his hand up on the wall just over her shoulder, and he leaned in toward her, and he said, he said to her, how about a goodnight kiss? Well, she said, are you, are you crazy? My parents will see us. Oh, come on, he said. Who's going to see us at this hour of the night? No, no, please. Can you imagine if we get caught? Come on, he said. They're asleep. No way, no way. It's too risky. Please, please, please. I like you so much. No, 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 no. I, I like you too, but I just can't. I just can't. Oh, yes, you can. Please, please. At that moment... The porch light came on and the door behind her opened. And there stood this girl's sister. Her hair was all disheveled. She was there in her pajamas in a sort of a sleepy kind of a voice. She looked at them and she said, Dad said to go ahead and give him a kiss. <laughs> or I can do it for you if you want me to. <laughs> he even said he'd come down and do it himself. But whatever you do, tell your date to take his hand off the intercom button. Don't you wish life were that simple today and all you had to think about was a kiss at the door? 
It would be nice if life was that simple again. There was a study that was done by ChristianMingle.com. That's a dating website. So obviously it's not going to represent all Christendom, but it gives you an idea. And this particular study was done of those that are 18 to 59 years of age. And the question that was asked of them is, would you have sex before marriage? 63% of the respondents said yes on what is supposed to be a Christian dating website. 63% of them said yes. Now, I don't know that that represents all of Christendom, uh, all of those who, who would fall under the category of people that are followers of Jesus, but at least from that Christian website, 63% said they'd have sex before marriage. An author by the name of Kenny Luck, in a book that he wrote called Sexual Atheism, Christian Dating Data Reveals a Deeper Malaise. What a long title. But this is what he said. Christian young adults have become sexual atheists. And I might just add to that, at least from my experience, it's middle-aged people and older people as well. Christian young adults have become sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on that subject of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. He goes on, it is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God can also believe simultaneously that he should not, that is, God should not, cannot, or will not let him inform his thinking about his sexuality. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? Somehow we've compartmentalized our lives. We, over here, can say we're disciples of Jesus, but then over here we can be living sexually immoral lives. And somehow we make the distinction between the two as if the two should never meet. And yet what we're going to find out in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today is that you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, it definitely, distinctly affects your sexual conduct. Just sort of, you, you sort of get a background of what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me, let me give you a little bit of history of some of the things that were happening at this time because you're going to see that it's a lot of the things that are happening today. Author and scholar John Stott writes this, It's not surprising that the apostle begins with sex, that is, the closing of this letter, that he begins with sex, not only because it's the most imperious of all human urges, but also because of the sexual laxity, even promiscuity, of the Greco-Roman world. He goes on to talk about, uh, in Corinth, uh, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of sex and beauty. Uh, that was likened to Venus in Rome. And then he talks about Thessalonica. And he says in Thessalonica there were the religious cults where there was gross immorality that was promoted under the name of religion. Can you imagine? Uh, William Leckie in his book History of European Mor Morals talks about the Roman Empire, specifically about Greece, Asia Minor, and Egypt. And he said it had become the center of some of the wildest corruption you could imagine. He says there's probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars. And that's a little bit of the background of the first century when the Apostle Paul is writing these words. William Luck goes on, and I quote him word for word. The church was not exempt from the temptations of sexual immorality. 
Churches in cities like Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, not to exclude others, were warned and rebuked regarding immorality being practiced by their members. The church at Corinth was proud of its tolerance of a man who was living with his father's wife, something which even shocked the unbelieving Corinthians. You say, wow, when you listen to a description, a general description of some of the ways that people were sexually immoral in the first century and in other centuries, it sounds an awful lot like the 21st century, and you would be right. It is an awful lot like the 21st century. But because we live in this context of the 21st century, and because there are these commands that are given to us in the Scripture, it's important for us to come to the, to the Bible and ask God, what do you have to say, not just about human sexuality, not just about homosexuality, what do you have to say about holy sexuality? So I want you to follow along with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought, circle that word, how you ought to walk and to please God. Can we stop there for a moment? In other words, what he's about to tell you is one of the ways in which you please God. Now you want to please God, don't you? I want to please God. I believe all of God's children desire to please their Father, their Heavenly Father. So he's about to tell you one of the ways in which we please God. It's not the only way, but it is one of the main ways, one of the principal ways that we please God. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's interesting in 40 years of ministry how many people have come and said, Pastor, can you help me discover what is the will of God? Well, how about we just start with what God says is his will? It's written all over the pages of Scripture. Let's just do what he's already told us to do. Here he says his will is that you be sanctified. He goes on in three clauses that, that follow. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know, go, do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, because God didn't call us to uncleanness, he called us to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us His Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you recognize as you read those words, we're going to pull some of them apart here in just a few minutes, but I don't know if you recognize that in those words, He has an emphatic word to say about holy sexuality. Some of it is negative. Don't do this. Don't do this. This is not the right thing. Abstain. Stay away from it. But then He has some things that are positive. This is your calling. I've given you the Holy Spirit to aid you and to assist you in this matter. And if you look at those eight verses, there are at least seven sentences that you can write out about what God is saying. Number one, you know what commandments we gave you. That's verse two. In other words, Paul says, I've already told you this before. I've spoken to you about it. This is not news to you. But I've got to go over it again. I've got to make sure you understand what it is I'm telling you, what God has told me to tell you. The second, the will of God is to abstain from immorality. That's verse 3. You should control your body in holiness. That's verse 4. 
Don't behave like those that don't know God. That's verse 5. Don't defraud others in this matter. That's verse 6. To defraud means to steal or to cheat, to take something that doesn't belong to you. You've been called in holiness. That's verse 7. And seventhly, rejecting this teaching is rejecting God. So that in seven phrases, seven times, Paul reminds us in this passage that God places a high value on holy sexuality. God places a high value on holy sexuality. So you say, Pastor, how do we understand holy sexuality? So we're going to look at it in three little phrases. So if you're writing them down, you'll want to write down these three phrases. The first truth is this. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed. Now, in this particular passage, he's talking about the opposite. He's talking about immorality. But within the context, a moral context, within the, within the context of marriage, he wants you to know, the Scripture wants you to know, that sex is a gift to be enjoyed. I hope you know that Satan and Hugh Hefner and Hollywood and HBO and the Internet did not create sex. Sex was created by the holy God of heaven where purity reigns. And aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? Okay, you don't have to be, but you should be. I mean, it's he that gave us our sex drive to be used for his glory. It's he that has given us this sex drive. And if he hadn't given it to us, it wouldn't exist. And if it didn't exist, you wouldn't exist. Well, maybe that wouldn't be so bad for some, right? God is the one who has given this incredible gift to a husband and wife to be enjoyed within the bonds of a marriage. He gave this holy sexuality to be physically pleasurable, mutually satisfying, potentially reproductive, and above all, a deeply personal and relationally bonding union between a husband and a wife. And it's God who has given it. Let's not turn sex as God intended it to be into something that is dirty. Let's celebrate the gift that God has given to us in the sexuality that he placed within marriage. Let's celebrate it. You know, there's a book in the Bible that celebrates it. There's a book in the Bible that celebrates it. It's called the Song of Solomon. Forty-five years ago, a couple of years before Mary and I were married, there was a pastor who was going to be preaching through the Song of Solomon. And he was going to do it Monday through Friday evening. And I thought, man, this is going to be good. I had read the Song of Solomon. Have you read the Song of Solomon? Ooh. Some of you read it and you don't understand it because you don't understand the poetic language that's there. But I thought, man, this is going to be, this is going to be good. I mean, I'm 16, 17 years old. It's going to be good. I get there on the first night, and he says that he's going to approach the Song of Solomon and use it as an allegory or an illustration of Christ and his church. <sighs> and it's possible to use the story of Solomon and the Shulamite woman as an illustration of Christ and the church or as an illustration of God and Israel. Both of those are possible. But if you read the book literally and you read through Middle Eastern eyes and you listen to the poetic words that he has to say, you understand that Solomon has written for us a book that celebrates this gift of sex that God has given. Jerome, who was an early scholar, tells us that Jewish young men weren't even allowed to read the book until they were 30 years of age. 
I wasn't old enough to even read the book, let alone listen to sermons about the book. But in the book, you see this beautiful depiction of what sex is supposed to be between Solomon and this Shulamite woman. I mean, you read those words about the black goats or sheep that are, that are coming down the mountain. And we, we look at that and we say, if, if you say to me, honey, that I look like a flock of sheep, black sheep that are flowing down the mountain, uh, that's not going to really be very good for me. But if you stop and think about it, he's talking about her black hair that flows down around her shoulders. And all of that kind of poetic language. Uh, Mary's tried a little of it on me. It doesn't work. You know, I don't have that neck like a tower or, you know, those kind of things. It just doesn't work too well. But you've got to read beyond the poetry. Now you're going to all go, go home. You're going to read the Song of Solomon, aren't you? You're going to learn it new. But in that book, you find this incredible description of what sex should be within the bonds of marriage. And it's portrayed in not a crass way, uh, not a lurid way. The kind of things that are done today on our phones and on our television sets and in the movies and in printed media, it's not in a crass or a lurid way. It's presented in a poetic way. And you begin to see the beauty of what it is that God has given to us, that sex is a gift to be enjoyed. So I don't want you to go out of here saying, well, sex is something that's dirty. It's just dirty. It's ugly. It's, it's horrible. I don't, want to, I don't want to have anything to do with it. No, 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 no. God intended sex to be a gift. And he intended it to be a gift that you enjoy. The second statement. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed, but sex is a desire to be guarded. It's a desire to be guarded. So let me give you a little bit of a mental image of what I'm talking about. I've been to some of your houses. Some of you have been kind enough to invite us to your house. The others of you have not. <laughs> and I'm having fun with you. We've been to some of your houses and you have a, a patio out back. And on that patio or just off the edge of that patio, you have a, a fire pit. And we don't have a place at our house for a fire pit, but I love a fire pit, don't you? And there's those days, especially during this time of the year when it's a little bit cool in the evenings, you kindle a fire within that fire pit and you watch the flames as, as they, they are growing in that, uh, in that wood. And you just enjoy the atmosphere. And maybe, maybe you're like us, uh, you might make some s'mores over that fire. You want to dismiss and go make some now? some s'mores over that fire, maybe some marshmallows over that fire, and you warm up to that fire. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. It's a fun thing. It's enjoyable to watch. It's enjoyable to be warmed by. But if that fire gets out of that fire pit, that fire can be dangerous, it can be destructive, and it can be deadly. You don't think so? Think about California today. A fire within the context where it's intended to be can be something that you warm yourself to, something that you enjoy being around, something that's beautiful, something that's useful. But outside of that context, that fire can be deadly, it can be destructive, it can be dangerous. If you just use that sort of as an analogy, sex within the right context is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed, but sex within that context has to be something that's guarded. That desire has to be guarded because if it gets outside of that fire pit, it becomes dangerous anywhere else. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. 
Actually, he gives three instructions that are related to holy sexuality. The first is this. There's a call in this passage to be different. Notice back, if you will, to the text, just for a moment. He says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your, here's the word, sanctification. At the end of verse 4, he says, Know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification. If you go down a little bit further in verse 7, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. All three of those words are translations of the same Greek word. It means to be set apart unto God. It means something that is set apart for Him. It's kept within the boundaries that God intended. Let me illustrate to you what I mean. We get paid twice, uh, twice a month. I never see the paycheck. If I sign the paycheck, they wouldn't recognize my signature at the bank. They wouldn't give me money. But I get paid twice a month. You know what I'm talking about? Mary handles all that stuff for us. When we get paid, the first thing we do is we set apart our tithes and our offerings. That's the first thing that comes out. We set it apart. It goes separate to everything else and we keep it and nothing touches it. It stays within the confines of the tithes and the offerings. We take out of that money that we receive on every other week, we take a little bit and we put it in our vacation fund. It goes in a savings account, and in that savings account, we keep that money, and we never touch it because when it comes summertime and we want to go on vacation, we don't want to have to wonder how we're going to pay for it. We take a little bit of that money out, and we put it up for retirement. I'm going to be able to retire at 85. I'm glad to be able to tell you. Well, we put a little bit of it up for retirement, and then we use the rest of it for those mundane things, you know, like the electric bill and the gas bill and the water bill and all those other bills that have to be paid. But there are parts of that money that are set apart. That's what the word sanctification means. You're set apart for something very specific and something very useful. And God says that it's His will that you be holy, that you be sanctified. Now, holiness often looks like, you know, death warmed over. That's not what it's intended to be. It's more like the idea of wholeness. There's a wholeness to your life that comes from the inside and expresses itself outwardly. But in this passage of Scripture, talking about sex being a desire that has to be guarded, he says there's a call to be different. We're to be set apart. This is something unique. This is something special. It's something that's supposed to be kept within its proper context. The problem we have in the world in which we live is that we don't want to be different. We want to blend in. We don't want to stand out. We want to blend in. And therein is the problem. We're afraid to be different. So we dress like everybody else's dresses. We go where everybody else goes. We do what everybody else does. We live like everybody else lives. And for the most part, many of those things are harmless and have no no significance whatsoever. But there are those aspects and those parts that do have great significance. In the realm of our holy sexuality is one of those things. God has set us apart, and he has set this holy sexuality apart. It's supposed to be something unique and special and kept within a certain boundary. You set it apart. He wants you to be different. Have you ever wondered sometimes why the world doesn't understand what sin is? Not only because they don't know the scripture, but sometimes it's because they don't see righteousness in the life of a believer. They see believers living the same way they live, doing the same things they do, going to the same kind of things that they go to, and feeling no conviction about it whatsoever. And they say, well, if that's what a Christian is, that's not much different to, to me. There's no difference between us. 
And yet the Apostle Paul says, when it comes to this matter of guarding this desire that God has given as a gift, there's a call here to be different. There's also a command to be restrained. A command to be restrained. Will you please notice it? In verse 3, he says, The will of God is that you be sanctified, that you be set apart, that there be this distinction made about this area of sexuality in your life, that you should abstain. You hear the word? Abstain. In verse 4, he says that each one of you should know how to possess. You know how to possess his own vessel. There's a call to be different. There's a command to be restrained. How to possess his own vessel. If you have a study Bible, you probably can look over in the notes and it may say something like, it could be translated to take a wife or to live with a wife. But let me just tell you that in this context, that's not what it means. The word vessel can sometimes refer to a wife. It can refer to our bodies uh, that are vessels. But here he's talking about our own selves, our sexuality. He's reminding us that we are commanded to possess our own, our own vessel. We're, we're to guard this sexuality that God has given to, to us, this holy sexuality. We're to be different and we're to be restrained in our sexuality. I grew up during the sexual revolution. By the way, we're reaping the consequences of the sexual revolution. I was born in 1957, and the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s was all around us. The liberation supposedly turned into not liberation, it turned into slavery. We're reaping the consequences of that. That's, God says, that's, what I'm telling you is the exact opposite of that. There's a command to be restrained. There's a call to be different. But then there's a cause to be embraced. Will you notice the cause to be embraced? Uh, You you find it in verse verse 5. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, he says... This cause to be embraced is because of the Gentiles. You say, what do you mean? This isn't a matter of him saying, well, we're not supposed to be like the Gentiles because we're better than they are. He's saying that we're not supposed to be like the Gentiles because they should see in us the reality of Christ. They should see in us the reality of wanting to be his disciple and to be his follower. Why? Because sex is a desire that has to be guarded. We have to be different when it comes to sexuality. We have to be restrained when it comes to sexuality. We have to embrace that our lives have impact on other people. Because sex is a desire to be guarded. Now I know inevitably there are people who have objections to this whole matter of holy sexuality. I've heard them many times. There's some who say Paul's instruction is personal opinion and culturally bound. And therefore, it's not authoritative for today. Don't you always love people who say those things? It just means what it meant in Paul's context. It doesn't mean what it means in our context. But you know, he's going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time proving that. I don't know if you can see this or not, but in my Bible, every time the, the, the name of God is used, I have it underlined in Lord, just look, or underlined in red, excuse me. Just look back for a moment. Chapter 4, in the middle of the verse, verse 1. In the Lord Jesus, at the end of the verse, to please God. At the end of verse 2, through the Lord Jesus. 
at the end of verse 5, do not know God, at the end of verse or middle of verse 6, because the Lord, in verse 7, for God, in verse 8, but God. In other words, this is not something that's just a matter of the context in which the Apostle Paul was living. This is the instruction of God himself. It's transcultural and it's transgenerational. It wasn't just for the first century in Thessalonica because of the specific circumstances. It's for every generation. Sex is a desire that has to be guarded. We're to be different in this area of our lives. We're to be restrained in the control of our sexuality. We're to embrace this cause that our lives should be reflecting Jesus Christ to others, to the Gentile world that doesn't know God. Somebody else will say, well, suppression of the sexual desire is unnatural and it's harmful. I had someone tell me this and they used the animal kingdom as their explanation of, of, the, of their point. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but animals and humans, I don't think we want to use the animal kingdom as an example for humans. I mean, animals are wonderful and we love our animals, don't we? And we uh, treat them well and we care for them, we, rightfully so, we do all those good things for them. Uh, but, you know, they can't reason like humans can reason. They can't love like humans can love. They can't give. They can't be committed. They can't do a lot of things like humans do them because they, they're not made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. So there's uniquenesses about us. We, we don't want to look at the animal kingdom. They, they said to me, he said, well, it's just natural to mate. <laughs> you don't have to teach dogs to mate or cats to mate. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, we had two cats. They're, we're both in heaven now. <clears throat> I'm not sure that cats belong in heaven. At least our two. You know, when our cats would go out, they didn't evaluate the other cats in the neighborhood to see if they were worthy or not. He's not my type. I don't think I could love him. I could never commit to a cat like that. Never did any of that kind of stuff. That's why we had our cats fixed. They had no, they had no discrimination when it came to just mating. We don't call that between a, a man and a woman mating. We call it something else. We call it making love. There's something deeper. There's something more real. There's something fuller. There, there's something that's involved in our image, the image of God that's involved. And so the whole idea of you're suppressing sexual desire, it's unnatural and harmful. Well, then it is God who's told us to do that. It, it is God who is the one who said to abstain from sexual immorality. It is God who is the one who said to possess his own vessel, bring it under control. Somebody else says, well, sexual relations between consenting partners isn't harmful. It's, it's not harmful. That's the dogma of our culture. You know that, don't you? And if you dare disagree with it, you better expect a rebuke. You better expect a rebuke. Earlier this year on The Bachelorette, No, I don't watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. 
But a news item, I've copied it out, a news, news item came out about apparently the young woman who had all these different suitors who were playing for her heart. Her name was Hannah, and his name, one of them, was Luke. Both of these are professing believers. They say they are professing believers in Jesus. And Luke was interested, apparently, at some point in whether Hannah was involved in a sexual relationship with some of these others on the show. This article says it all started when he told Hannah that while he's not a virgin, he's been abstinent for the past four years because of his religious beliefs, and he wanted the same for her, saying he was very confident that we were on the same page with our morals, and I just want to hear it from your mouth, Luke said. Like, I totally, have to all, I totally have all the trust in the world for you, but at the same time, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Like, can't we find another word than like? Like, if you told me you're going to have sex or you had sex with one, of the, one or multiple of these guys, I would be wanting to go home 100%. Apparently, they're having this conversation while the cameras are, are watching all of this. Do you realize how hard relationships are without a camera? Or a director behind the scenes, and the director is hoping for some big blow up because their ratings go up. Right? Well, Hannah didn't like it. Oh. Hannah didn't like it. She said, It's just that you're questioning me and you're judging me and feel like you have the right to do so when you don't at this point. And I get it, she says, when you care about someone that you don't want to think that somebody being intimate with another person. But guess what? Sex might be a sin out of marriage. So is pride. And I feel like this is a pride thing for you. <laughs> you say, why are you laughing? Because you're crazy if you watch those shows. <laughs> I say that with all the love of a pastor's heart. You're crazy if you watch those kind of shows. I don't, I don't understand that. I can't comprehend it. What am I saying? I'm saying that if you happen to say that sexual relations between consenting partners is not harmful, if you contradict that, Hannah is coming for you. You're just being judgmental. And you don't have a right to be judgmental. That's the idea. Can I just tell you that she's altogether wrong. That objection is a devastating myth in nothing more than secular propaganda it's a reality-denying realization. It's a reality-denying realization. Wendy Shallot has written three books about morality. In one of her books, she says, Sexual modesty has gone from a virtue to prudery to pathology. She concludes by saying, Jaded sexual promiscuity has become mature. She's, being, she's simply pointing out the way people think. Jaded sexual promiscuity has become mature. If you're not involved in these kind of things, you're just not mature. You have no right to judge me. You've got a pride issue. And it's unbelievable that Christians think that way. Now, I understand why believe, unbelievers don't think that way, or think that way, I should say. I understand why unbelievers don't know what the Bible says and don't practice what the Bible says, but I have a hard time understanding how believers who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, who attest to the fact that the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God, and is their 
their manual for living. They're supposed to be following what it says. It's hard for me to understand why Christians don't get this. I've got news for you. It is harmful. Sex outside the boundaries that God intended it, that is in marriage, is dangerous. There's abandonment, there's exploitation, there's humiliation, there's subjugation, there's control, there's violence of all sorts, there's economic hardship, there's social isolation, there's powerlessness, there's psychological pain, there's spiritual guilt, there's debilitating diseases, and in the first century, if you happen to create a baby, there was abortion, infanticide, or abandonment. That was your three options if you didn't want the child. Abortion, infanticide, or, or, or abandonment. And may I suggest that a lot of that abandonment goes on today. We have so many children that are being raised in families where there isn't a father-mother figure. Men that are having babies by multiple women. Some of the children don't even know who their father is. You go ask those children if it's harmful. By the way, inside the context of marriage, go ask the spouse that was offended by their husband or their wife who had an affair if it was painful or not. Go ask their children how painful it was. Sexual relations between consenting partners is harmful if it's outside the boundaries of marriage. There was a study in 2014, that's five years, at the University of Virginia that found that sex before marriage has a definite negative effect on the marriage itself. And here's what the study said. Again, I read it word for word. What people do before marriage appears to matter. Specifically, it appears to matter. Why don't we just listen to God? What people do before marriage appears to matter. Specifically, how they conduct their romantic lives before they tie the knot is linked to their odds of having happy marriages. A vast majority of Americans have sex before marriage. Many of them have sex with multiple partners before finding the person they will eventually marry. The ghosts of the prior romances can haunt new ones. Those who had more romantic experiences are more likely to have lower quality marriages than those with a less complicated romantic history. Then it finishes by saying, this doesn't mean that sex before marriage will doom a marriage, but sex with many different partners may be risky if you're looking for a high quality marriage. i got news for you. That's the kind of marriage I want. That's the kind of marriage I want for my children and my grandchildren. Don't you? For your children and your grandchildren? Sex before marriage between two consenting adults or even sex when it's an adulterous relationship between two consenting adults is harmful. It's destructive. It's deadly. It's fire. It's outside the box. That's why sex is a desire that has to be guarded. You have to keep it in that box. You have to keep it where God intended it. It's powerful. It's a gift. It's wonderful within that context. But it's deadly and it's dangerous outside of that context. Somebody else suggested that sexual purity is irrelevant to spiritual vitality. <laughs> sexual purity is irrelevant to, to spiritual vitality. Well, not in the words of the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God. I don't know if you understand. It's sort of hard to be his disciple if you're rejecting him. He says, if you're going to please God, 
This is the way I want you to live. This is my will for you. This is a holy sexuality that I want you to enjoy within the bonds of marriage. So sex is a gift to be enjoyed. Sex is a desire to be guarded. But thirdly, sex is a trust to be honored. Sex is a trust to be honored. You know, there's something about a husband-wife relationship where they trust each other. And trust is absolutely important in this matter of holy sexuality. It enables you to be emotionally and intimately vulnerable with your spouse. You don't have to wear a facade as if you're trying to hide behind that facade. And where there's the absence of trust, there's anxiety and there's fear and there's disappointment and there can can be betrayal. That's the reason why God safeguards marriage. He wants it to be a commitment, a covenant between two people where they promise each other that we will be faithful to one another. That firebox, we will be faithful to one another. And inside that faithfulness, there is that kind of emotional and intimate vulnerability that that exists and that holy sexuality that exists. He gives us all of these commands. Some of them here in 1 Thessalonians 4 about holy sexuality. Because he knows that in protecting the sexual union of a husband and a wife, he's building trust. There's trust that is building between the two of them. Sex is a trust to be honored. What is the number one thing in a a married couple? And one of the persons has an affair. What is the number one thing that you hear from the offended spouse? What's the number? Don't say it out loud. What's the number one thing? I don't know whether I will ever be able to trust him again, her again, or not. Sex is a trust to be honored. Now, Paul gives two reasons for this kind of holy sexuality. You see it in verse 7 and 8. First of all, it shows reverence for God. He says, God called you, didn't call you to uncleanness, but he called you in holiness. The man who rejects this doesn't reject man, but he rejects God who has given us his Holy Spirit. When we live within the context of holy sexuality, when we keep it within the firebox of marriage, safeguarded by the commitments that you've made to one another, following the commands of Scripture about restraining yourself and abstaining from all kinds of sexual immorality. The result is that you're reverencing God and you're recognizing that God is the one who created marriage and God is the one who gave sex as a gift to begin with. But the second reason for holy sexuality is because it shows respect for others. You notice in verse 6, he says that no one should take advantage of. Hear those words? No one should take advantage of and defraud his brother, to steal from his brother, to cheat his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Let me read it to you in a different way. Just write it down in your notes. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Listen to it. Marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled, but fornicators, that's before marriage, outside of marriage, And adulterers, that's inside of marriage, God will judge. That's what he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you reject this teaching, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God. And you're showing to God a disrespect 
Not only a disrespect toward God, you're showing a disrespect toward others because you're taking from somebody else something that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. Keith Anderson wrote a book called What They Don't Always Teach You at a Christian College. And he was talking to these, these new college students about, about their sexuality, holy sexuality, as I'm calling it. He says, God values people, relationships, and sex. And the reason why sex outside of marriage is sin is because it does not value these things highly enough. It doesn't value people. It doesn't value God. It doesn't value the sex that God gives. It doesn't, they don't value it highly enough. It doesn't show reverence for God. It doesn't show respect to others. Are you still with me? This is a hard sermon to deliver. I don't know if you know that or not. I remember when Mary and I were dating, just before we were married, we had gone on a date somewhere, <clears throat> probably to a church event. Most all of our dates were around some kind of a church event. And uh, when we got through, we came back to her house. It was late in the evening. It was dark. She, she lived on 25 acres. She had a small, her parents had a small house. Of course, any house on 25 acres looks small. But she had a small house. It was a five-room five house, two bedrooms, a, a living room, a kitchen, dining room area, and a bathroom. It was a five-room house. It had a carport on the end, so that you come up the driveway, you turn right and pull into the carport so you could get out of the weather and go in the side door of the house. And on the gable of this carport, there was a dust of dawn light. So on this particular night, Mary and I had been out on a date. and We had come back, and we got back a little earlier than we thought we were going to be back. And we come up the driveway. Now, you got to understand, it's, it's a gravel driveway, dirt and gravel driveway. So you can hear cars coming up inside. You're out in the country. You see lights in your, in your front windows. You know somebody's there. So we, we pull up in the driveway, pull up beside the carport, not to pull in, just pull up beside the carport underneath this light that's over the overhead of us. And we, we decide just to sit there and talk for a few minutes. And I didn't have my arm around her. Wasn't holding her hand. Wish I had been. We were just talking. A couple of minutes turns into 15 minutes, turns into 30 minutes. We're just sitting out there talking. We're just talking about, you remember those days? You remember those days? Why aren't those days still existing? Remember those days we'd sit down and just, just to talk to one another? I didn't want to go home. Her, play, her house was the, was the most special place on the planet. I wanted to be there. She was there. The magnet was there. It was drawing me there. And here's the crazy thing. Her, my house was seven miles away. As soon as I got home, I picked up the phone and called her. <laughs> and we'd talk another half hour or more. But I'm sitting out here under this light. She's sitting over in the seat next to me. And about 30 minutes goes by, and suddenly there's <laughs> on the back window of my car. And I'm thinking there's got to be some crazy man out here who's going gonna to kill us. He's going to take us out in the field. He's going to leave us down there by the creek bank. And I turn around, and it's Mary's mother. It's Artie. And now I know I'm in big trouble. Now I know I, I put my hands up. <laughs> I'm not doing anything. We roll the window down. She says, y'all come in. Y'all come in. Do y'all do that with your kids? Why not? Why not? Aren't you the parent? Come in. 
Why? Because holy sexuality is something that you have to guard. It's a desire you have to guard. It's a gift that can be enjoyed within the right context. And it's a trust that you have to honor. And when you honor it, you're showing reverence for God and respect for others. Let me close with a story. Eugene Peterson is probably not a name many of you know. He wrote about 30 books. He was a Presbyterian minister. Um, If you've ever read the translation, don't put your Bible up. We're going to read again from it in a minute. Um, If you've ever read uh, the translation, the message that was done by Eugene Peterson. He was sitting in a, a class with his students and he was interpreting the Bible from the original languages, but he, he realized that it wasn't connecting with his students. So he decided that what he was going to do was take the original languages and he was going to write it out more into the vernacular of the day so that they could get the gist of the message. Now, I don't use that Bible, that translation, I should say, for, for study purposes because it's a paraphrase. When I'm studying the Bible, I like more word-for-word kind of things. But I, I like to pick it up and I like to read it. If you've got version on your phone or on your iPad, uh, it's, it's there. It's a, it's a free translation you can read from. He had a young woman who started coming to his church. By the way, he passed away last year. But he had a young woman who started coming to his church. After a period of time, she became a believer in Jesus. And she made a commitment to follow Jesus with her life. Uh, she followed the Lord in baptism Uh, She started growing as a disciple. She was attending Bible studies. She was at the church services. Whenever the church was meeting, she was always there. And Eugene Peterson says about this young woman, she embraced everything readily and gladly. But there was one thing that bothered him. She was living with her boyfriend, and she had been living with him for a long time. And he didn't know whether to say something to her about it or just to wait a little while for her to grow, thinking that maybe if she just saw some other people in the church or somebody else would say something to her, she would figure it out that this is not the way the Scripture teaches us to live. This is not what the Scripture says that we should do. One day, after many weeks had passed, he decided he couldn't let it just go on anymore. So he said, could I ask you a question? I want to ask a favor of you. And she said, well, sure, what is it? And she responded and she said, or he responded and said, I want you to live celibate for the next six months. There was a trusting relationship between these two because this woman said, sure, if you're asking me to do it. She asked first, you know, why? But then she said, okay, I'll do that. Are are you leaning in? Within seven days, her boyfriend left. Not a lot of commitment there, right? Not a lot of commitment there. A month later, she hadn't said anything about living celibate to Dr. Peterson. Two months went by. She came to see him, and she talked to him about it. This is what she said. When you asked me to live celibate for six months, I had no idea what you were up to. You asked me to trust you, and so I did. It's been two months now, and I think I understand what you're doing. I feel so free. I've never felt so, so myself before. Never felt so at home with myself. I thought everybody did what I was doing. All my friends did. I just thought this was the American way. And now I'm noticing so many other things about my relations with others They seem so much more clean and whole, so uncluttered. 
She continues, do you know what? I've been thinking that I might want to get married someday. And she looked at Dr. Peterson. She said, thank you. Two months turned into a year, which turned into two years. During that time, she met a young man. They ultimately got engaged. Dr. Peterson says that after two years, he and his fiance, she and her fiancé were, were married, and he was privileged to be able to bless their Christian marriage. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that living according to the Word of God brings freedom. Living according to the lusts of the flesh brings bondage. It complicates your life. It doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. It doesn't matter that everybody else is doing it. If we want to please God, we abstain from sexual immorality. And can I take just one more moment? The word immorality, sexual immorality, is pornea. It gives us our word pornography, but don't limit it to just pornography. It's any kind of sexual conduct that's against Scripture, that's the fire outside of that box. Any kind. Pornography is a major problem in the church today. And your kids have got it in their hand. A phone with internet access that if you're not guarding it, they'll be looking at it. Look back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 1, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. This should be growing, this should be true, uh, increasingly so. Just as you receive from us how you ought, circle the word ought, to walk. That means to live your life, to conduct yourself, and to please God. You want to please God? For you know what commandments we gave you. He'd already spoken to him about it. He already told him through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Young people, young adults, unmarried, single, married people. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And because he called us in holiness, therefore... He who rejects this does not reject man, but God. That's who we reject, who has given us his Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. May we not use these bodies in ways that are sexually immoral. 